0: Episode 18, a conversation about police reform with Zachary Getrich. HB 3653 is a current piece of legislation that, when implemented, is going to change the way policing is handled in Illinois. What does that mean? Well, my next guest, Zachary Getrich, is a local activist and journalist who was gracious enough to come on and unpack all of it for us. Zachary has done substantial research into this bill and has been involved with police reform efforts pre-trial fairness for some time. Outside of just HB 3653, we get into the distinctions between terms like defend, reform, defund, and abolish police. As we think about how we want the police to operate in communities of the future, these are helpful distinctions to understand. Since this episode is longer than most, I left some details in the show notes so you can scrub along. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and stop resisting. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Keep Your Day Job podcast. Today we're talking about cops, specifically. Um, We're talking about police reform, um, and all of the different forms that that may take. Uh, We're lucky to have Zachary Getrich here, um, who is a local journalist and activist. Zachary, why don't I give you a chance to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I run the blog, strangecornersofthought.com, where I do kind of a mixture of local journalism as well as, like, broader, you know, philosophical things. Um, I was born and raised in Peoria, and I lived most of my life in Peoria. Uh, In my 20s, I lived up in Chicago, because I went to college up there, and I went to DePaul. And uh, I got my... Uh, bachelor's degree in philosophy still do not regret that at all any day now they're going to build that philosophy factory
0: i I get it i get i'm holding an art degree so yeah Uh, (laughs) 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 any day now yes
1: Um, but no that is not you know there's a lot of things i regret and it wasn't doing Mm -hmm. that um so and then you know after that kind of ended i came back uh, i was living in peoria for I don't know, probably five or six years, and I'd always been interested in doing like activism. I'd always found myself somewhat on the periphery of like whatever was like the normative political view, and I was more you know I was more resistant to authority um, and stuff like that. So you know, when I was in Chicago, you know that's when the Occupy movement happened, and I was at some of those encampments. I wasn't a big part of it or anything, but. Um, I was, that definitely had some influence on me. And then when I came back to Peoria, um, because I'd been a long time volunteer with Planned Parenthood, I started, you know, hooking up with groups with reproductive rights. And very briefly I did a fight for a living wage campaign where we did like two or three protests and like still just kind of trying to figure out what it is that you're supposed to do. Um, but once Trump got elected, there was, uh, There was a big surge in activism everywhere, Um, and that definitely got me more involved. I started coming out here because I, you know, I had some friends that knew some other activist friends out here, and, you know, Bloomington Normal has a really long and rich tradition of doing activism going back, like, 15 years of a lot of, like, the same group, and so... In Peoria, I started my own group called Peoria No Band No Wall, which focused mainly on immigrant justice issues. Um, but then I would travel sometimes weekly out to Blono to like the BLM meetings mm-hmm. and to learn them. And uh, um, eventually, I knew I wanted to leave Peoria, and as kind of I found was able to find a place in Bloomington. So it will be two years, June first, that I've lived out here, and I've lived in the same house. Um. And so, you know, a lot of my work lately, I, um, once I moved out here, definitely focused on policing and especially incarceration and like and then jail incarceration. And I try and keep a pretty close eye on the jail, even though we have a sheriff that doesn't like to give out information about the jail. Um. And so that's kind of, you know, the main expertise that um, that I've been trying to work with lately, so yeah. that I've been working on lately.
0: Yeah. And so most of the information that you do source about the jail comes from FOIA requests, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. And,
1: you know, I have this thing where, I'll find out a piece of information, but I can't find anybody else who's talking about it. So then I start questioning. Wait a minute, is this real information? And then like I get in my philosopher head, and I'm like, is any of this real, right? Like, <laughs> am I? And uh, you know, that's just like a mental trap. But it, it is what it is. And so I typically like I'll try and be like, hey, I don't see anyone else reporting this, but this is what it says, because um, it is important that like I get this information accurate. Um, but yeah, almost all of the evidence that I use or talk about, especially with regard to the jail, um, is based on FOIA requests. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with a lot of people on trying to increase the literacy around doing FOIAs because it's one of like the few laws that actually empowers like change and doesn't inhibit it. Um, and so, you know, that's been good, uh, Uh, I've been a member of the local DSA for a while because I know a lot of people that were in it, and, you know, I do a lot of research um, through them. But I mainly, you know, I just, like, I focus on my blog, uh, the local journalism, but then I also do, you know, a lot of philosophy videos because that is where my passion is. Um, And I try and focus on ways that I can apply, you know, general philosophy, these, like, really abstract concepts, you know, how can I apply them to real world situations? So one of the first videos I did was on R. Kelly. And it was right when the surviving R. Kelly stuff came out. And I did R. Kelly and the Politics of Truth. And the question there is uh, is not so much whether R. Kelly was right or wrong. By the way, he totally fucking did it. <laughs> I believe there's video evidence of this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the video wasn't about you know, whether he was right or wrong, but it was about these two competing discourses in society. Mm-hmm. One that was saying that he's being set up and that he's innocent. And another one coming from these survivors saying, no, he actually did this. And so right. the article that I originally wrote, and it was in the themantle.com, um, and then I made a video, is, is, is kind of showing how these different language regimes or knowledge regimes, but, you know, what is it, that we used to base truth on um, just how they've evolved. And it's gotten to the point where people don't believe R. Kelly anymore and they Mm -hmm. do believe these survivors. Um, And so that's kind of how I try and like, you know, fuse my philosophy with oftentimes with my activism. But I also do like, I am interested in like super abstract concepts that most people don't care about. Yeah. That's just like the nature of the beast, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the study of philosophy, right? Um, so let me ask, with respect to applying principles of philosophy to the type of journalism that you're doing right now, um, the polarization that we have right now in, in our culture, you mentioned R. Kelly, right? And, and I think that people were in their camps at the beginning of the R. Kelly thing, and then enough movies came out and pieces came out. So one question that I always wonder about humans in general is, is how easily we're influenced, right? Yeah. And and one thing that attracted me to your blog was that there was a amount of detailed research that went into it that allowed for some nuance, right? Like mm-hmm. one one could read your recent pieces and have difficulty positioning whether you're on the left or the right in some cases. Yeah. Speaking specifically about um, you know the the recent Biden pieces that you did so
1: the security deep state yes yes yes. um but and i think that i'll use the word deep state yeah because that's considered that's typically a right-wing term but the deep state like there is such a thing as a deep state and it usually comes in two forms one is the security deep state the other is like the administrative or bureaucratic deep state and it's it's just people their entire careers are in these positions and they you know they do it for decades and they last longer than most politicians. And it's not to say that it's necessarily bad to have a deep state. Like there's, Mm-mm. there are useful reasons to have centralization and like specific bureaucracies in place. Um, but the one that I'm, you know, Republicans are more concerned about the administrative deep state. So like the EPA coming and telling you yep. you can't dump somewhere. And I am more worried about the NSA. You know. Watching me through my camera getting naked, or keeping all of my, you know, genital pics or whatever, right, or right. That stuff, which they are doing, by the way. Or collaborating
0: with <laughs> yeah. different private organizations to get additional access to people's data. That, yeah. that happens. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, you know, the deep state is real. It's not just like a right wing phenomena. Um, but, in, and it's important to, you know, with these recent pieces, it's the Democrats that are leading this charge to get these done. Right. Um, They're the ones that really want it. Now, some of the Republicans have made, like, decent points about not to have it. But, again, their main reason for opposing it is, you know mainly, like, it's fairly perfidious, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They don't really have the best intentions yeah. always on uh, this stuff either. So, you know, I, I quoted Mitch McConnell, and I'm like, I hate that I gotta quote this guy, but he does actually make a lot of... In these very specific words, framed in this very specific way, he makes sense. It's <laughs> true.
0: That is true, yeah. So Well, and I think the 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 worst thing that Republicans can do, and I was reading someone's feedback on the proposed budget um is is to is to diminish it and say it's socialist or it's marxist because what's happening with neoliberals and if i can ask you to define that right what's happening is is absolutely in no way socialist and it, it is very much lining the pockets of the people who have the greatest vested interest in those candidates
1: yeah and just to be clear most republicans are also neoliberals yes yes and so neoliberalism right we have classical liberalism that you know started during the enlightenment this idea that there are all sorts of roles in society that the government just doesn't need to be involved in and the best way to handle these is through competition or through the use utilizing the profit motive Mm -hmm. um and that went on for a long time and like you can see just in america in the 19th century every 10 to 15 years you have a boom and bust cycle Mm -hmm. and it's fairly predictable Um, And then, you know, obviously it got so bad that we had the Great Depression. And then that got replaced with what, this is just my own personal term, I call modern liberalism, which is Mm -hmm. essentially Keynesianism. And it says that, you know, the government can actually be an effective method for, you know, bringing about change, you know, making things happen and whatnot. And neoliberalism is a response to that. It it contradicts what we saw in modern liberalism. Modern liberalism, in the, but it's different from classical liberalism because it wants to f- make the, prif- the profit motive the driving force in everything, mm-hmm. right? So if you would have gone back, you know, a hundred years ago, the idea that we had to run schools or government like a business, that would have just been nonsense. Like, what? That's just not that realm. And what we've done under neoliberalism, we, we've gotten to the point where everything has to be run like a business. And you'll talk to people that like run charter schools and they'll say, look, if you want to do this right, you got to run it like a business. Yeah. And we hear all the things like, oh, we need to run government like a business, even though government budgets and private budgets actually work very differently, right? Like, I'll, you'll hear the sheriff, Sheriff Sandwich. Uh, of McLean County, he'll say, I don't know why people are, you know, saying that, port. you know, we're making money here because we're always in the red. Well, in a government, if you're in the red, you need more money. Yeah. If you're in the green, that means you're wasting money and you need your budget cut. So, and I mean, that's not like uniform with government. But, um, yeah, and so, the, and then when it comes to actual government entities that you really can't run as effectively on the profit motive, well, the goal is austerity. Just cut their budgets mm-hmm. consistently without taking away uh, any responsibilities. Till you you know you've done this long enough, where everyone is just like, well, government can't do anything. We yeah. we it, it's it's completely useless. Mm-hmm. And so that opens the door to, oh, we're going to privatize all this stuff. We're going to open all of these different things um, to private corporations. And the one thing that you're seeing since 2020 that's changing is the stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. It's showing that no, the government actually can do something for you. And uh, there's an interesting juxtaposition between what is being happened right now in this crisis and what happened in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And Obama, they they gave you a tax break, but instead of just giving you a lump sum, Mm -hmm. they gave it back to you in each check. And the theory was that, oh, if we do this, they'll spend it more. They'll spend it more than if we just gave them a lump sum. But it also had the effect of where people didn't even realize they were getting this money. And so they can continue to assume that the government is in the way, the government Mm -hmm. can't do anything. And now when we're giving them Direct checks. And by the way, Biden still owes me $600. Yes. Because he promised two grand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. But now they're saying, no, the government can actually, you know, come in and, you know, do stuff in the economy. And just like one other thing, like there's this whole fraudulent divide between like, oh, if you're on the left, you like big government. And if you're on the right, you like small government. And it's just bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, like, Republicans love ICE and immigrant detention centers. And I cannot think of the biggest freaking state, you know, overburdensome type thing of anything. And when it really comes down to it, you know, free market capitalism it needs the government. We live in a capitalist state. Our government is a capitalist government mm-hmm. in that it privileges, whether it's through deregulations or whether it's through legalese or... Um, you know, any of the type of incentives like tax abatements, you know, we see that around here. Any of those things, it it, it specifically works in favor of the capitalist class. And that's why it's wrong to say that government isn't working. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's just not working for you or I. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's another thing that, is just kind of an illusion that, oh, there's a separation between big and small governments. Like, no, there's not. Right. Like, if, if you believe, you know, the libertarian wet dream of, like, the absolute minimalist government and we can just do everything by the competition motive, well, you still need the government to, like, enforce all those property mm-hmm. rights yeah. and everything like that. So, um, yeah, and, like, the ideal of neoliberalism, is the libertarianism. Look at the Koch brothers. Koch brothers are libertarians. Yeah. They ran on the Libertarian Party back in the 80s. The most Silicon Valley, you know, giants. They're libertarians. Mm-hmm. This is like the reason de etra of neoliberalism. Is it kind of achieving this notion of like pure libertarianism? Um, and so does that make sense? Like, my definition of, of neoliberalism, at least on, like, the economic side. Absolutely. Right? We, we have to apply the profit motive to everything.
0: Right. And I think everybody. what we've seen, um, I mean, is along with neoliberalism has come this sort of, like, global cultural homogeneity where, right, labor rights are being exploited as they're being exported in the name of developing cultures in other lands. And, to your point, the government is working very well for major corporations who seek to exploit those who have less than them.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can't even get twenty-eight percent tax, already. right? <laughs> and even Elizabeth Warren is like, "Oh, I'm going to do a two, 2 cent tax on over a million dollars." It's like, you can't do a fifty-cent tax on every dollar over this shit.
0: <laughs> and that's, but but there's there's some real humor to that though, because even if we go up to twenty-eight percent. The reality is that Jeff Bezos is not going to pay 28% in corporate tax. He has a team of people who will make sure that that bill gets picked up by someone else. And
1: because we've also done austerity to the IRS the IRS doesn't have the resources to actually effectively go after Jeff Bezos, but they do have the resources to go after you and me. It is true. If we fuck up somewhere, if we don't don't make the right dot, we'll say goodbye to your tax return.
0: Yes, it's very easy to go after a small fish that can't defend itself in the same way that a shark with a team of attorneys can. Absolutely. But that's not... I mean, I I wanted to use that as a frame to to start the conversation about policing and police reform um, because I think... It's really easy to misconstrue the terms in the name of liberalism, right, or libertarianism. So let's start the conversation about policing.
1: And obviously we're using a lot of these terms in their classical sense and not in, like, the current stupid American model that nowhere else in the entire world uses. That
0: is another really (laughs) great point. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just just to be clear, when we're talking about classical liberalism, Mm -hmm. we're talking about, like, John Locke and Rousseau and, Jen, and exactly. Thomas Jefferson, I guess.
0: That is no, that's that's a that's a good distinction. Yeah, because terms it's so easy for us to, to, to just be manipulated into believing that it's an American version of a thing when in reality it's it's a very it's a very different
1: thing. Yeah, and that's the other important thing that I mentioned. It's like most Republicans are neoliberals. Mm-hmm. Most Democrats are neoliberals. I mean you had the speaker of the House who Paul Ryan who required his staff to read Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. That was a requirement for the employment. Like, <laughs> you had Alan Greenspan, who was a literal acolyte of Ayn Rand, who she nicknamed the Undertaker as like the head of the Fed. <laughs> like, these people have won. <laughs> like, they're idiot- this is their ideology and it's, it sucks. But as I was saying in my article, Neoliberalism, because there's, there's a there's a tension between democracy and the profit motive. Mm-hmm. And so neoliberalism does require a police state you know the invisible left hand giveth what the iron right hand taketh away or the invisible left hand of the market giveth right. what the what, what the iron right hand of the state taketh away so. And that's how we enter into policing. <laughs> that is that is a good entry.
0: Thank you for clearing that so, up. Yeah. I will say I appreciate how you can go into way more detail and nuance than I am on this. I, f- I feel kind of dumb as I try to articulate myself sometimes on this. I'm so.
1: sure you know a lot more about, you know, PowerPoints. claims and PowerPoints <laughs> than I do. And that is that is clearly valuable.
0: So let's start talking about policing by helping our viewers understand the spectrum of change in police with respect to defend reform defund or abolish
1: yeah and so you know a lot of this for some of us right like i've been doing activism for like a long time i remember when ferguson happened i remember wanting to go down to ferguson like having this impulse that like i this is a place that i should be um but you know i was kind of following with a lot of the other um activists around dealing with state violence and so then we get the George Floyd incident, and there's just an explosion of new ideas, uh, many of which had already existed, but a lot of us just hadn't heard of, because I hadn't even really heard of the defundus position at that point, because it, it just didn't appear in my radar. But there's typically, the way that I understand it, is there's four different theories of understanding the police. And one is, this is like the furthest right Defend the police or defend the blue. And that is essentially well, policing is necessary in order to keep order and peace in society. And there are no systemic issues within policing. It's only a few bad apples, but let's not worry too much about the apples. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with that kind of thinking of like, this is a necessity, well, that starts leading to just, like, automatic deference to authority. So, oh, this person was stopped by the police. The police probably saw them doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, this person's being arrested by the police. Well, that person probably did something wrong. Oh, that person's in jail pending trial. They're probably guilty. And so that's the assumption that really gets made when you hold this defendant's position. And... Next, what you have is you have the reformist position, reform the blue, re- reform the police, which is essentially what I would call like the centrist, liberal, and by liberal, I mean capitalist. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like the Joe Biden position is it, it, um, is the reform the police model. And its goal is it, it says there are systemic issues. There is massive distrust between communities and the police but we're going to work within this system to try and improve this specific institution in all of the things that it's involved in and that the belief is that will fix the problems so that's essentially like the reformist position and like it's it seems to be the one position in my experience that seems to understand the least about like what actually happens with policing Like when Joe Biden says, oh, man, if they're unarmed, just like shoot them in the leg. And it's like, you know, when you get shot, that is like a split-second decision. (laughs) And like that does have to be taken into effect, right? You know, the defendants are going to say, well, the police have the lived experience. The, the, The corrections officers have the lived experience. Therefore, we should defer to their authority mm-hmm. because they have that.
0: You've never been in that situation. You've never been, You've been never in that situation. never had an armed suspect come at you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And
1: those are all true things. They do have lived experience, and that is important. The one thing that keeps getting forgotten is that with lived experience also comes a specific worldview. It comes with all sorts of biases. Mm-hmm. So you end up having a, a situation that you or I might be watching or let's just go back to the Rodney Davis from 1992, right? Yeah. He was drunk driving. They did eventually stop him, and there were four officers that were just wailing on him for minutes, and there were officials, like mm-hmm. higher-up officials, just standing there watching, letting them do it. Yep. And so they're going to say, well, look, you don't have this experience. You don't have to he do He kept this. trying to get up. Yeah, he kept trying mm-hmm. to get up. So you end up having this bias that really builds up over time that well, we're doing this right this this isn't wrong um i i guess i don't remember what i was trying to get. <laughs> no no so we were talking
0: about reform of the police and i think right you you mentioned the joe biden comment of just shoot him in the leg and i think where a lot of people would indicate reform falls short, is that over in a post-9-11 world, we've seen a continued militarization of police. Yeah. We have continued to see larger and arguably more aggressive police presences. And with the invention of the internet, we only continue to see this more and more. So in, in an effort to put a good faith spin on it, you have to be able to understand why people are skeptical of the ability to reform that yeah, system.
1: Exactly. Yes. Because and and I've talked to you about this before, at the philosophical level, mm-hmm. what are police? What is what is the function that they serve in society? And the function of the police, and this is not putting any kind of moral values of whether it's good or bad, right? You know It's like the death ray. The death Mm -hmm. ray isn't inherently good or bad. It's all in how you use the death ray. So the police are the agent of the state that has the right to legitimately wield violence in order to enforce the state's sovereignty, which is to enforce the state's law. That's what the police are. Mm -hmm. Um, And whenever you're talking about these solutions... That's what really needs to be at the back of the line. What, what does it mean when we mean defend the police? Will we mean to defend the agent of the state with legitimate use of violence or reform the, the state, the agent of the state with legitimate use of violence? Or then we get to defund, where it's like defund that or you know, reduce their scope or abolish, where it's abolish that agent right. that, um, that that uses violence legitimately. And I think that has helped me articulate why ultimately I fall under a defundist ideology that's that's really the primary thing that I believe because you can have all these nice little events with cops and you know you can ha- get ice cream with them but their primary goal like their function in mm-hmm. society is to wield violence tactically to enforce the so- sovereignty of the state right. now there's some good sometimes there's good reasons to do that Right. If, if someone rapes somebody, well, that's, that's illegal. The sovereign has determined that that's illegal. Go punish that person, please. Yes, I want you to use violence. Whenever you arrest somebody, regardless of whether they are resisting or not, you're using violence mm-hmm. or you're using the threat of violence. And it's one of those interesting things. I know this is just going to be on a tangent, but it's one of those interesting things um, when we saw the protest, especially the younger Activists that were coming out of nowhere, they were so important to stress, this is a peaceful protest, mm-hmm. right? As if we as Americans have an aversion to violence. But there's all sorts of violence that we don't see as illegitimate violence mm-hmm. that we like. Someone goes and arrests a pedophile. That's great!
0: Let's get him. Right? Get him. Yeah. That's
1: the violence that you want. And Foucault says this in one of his lectures. I think it's in the one, Society Must Be Defended. He points out... The peace you exist under, the peace that you walk under, under the ground is spilled blood. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the violence underneath that keeps that peace. So just in like globalization, you know, we enjoy all these like relatively cheap yes. products because of, you know, all these sweatshops in other countries and all of that. So yes. like like that, you know, whether you want to call that violence or not, but that like oppression is what builds, you know, help keeps our standard of living the way it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It
0: also absolves us from taking responsibility because it doesn't happen in our own space. Right? And I, it
1: allows us to absolve. I yes, don't know if yes, we're yes, actually. No, that's absolved. a great point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. No, so, I mean,
0: yeah, the environmental impact of mining lithium for batteries is still happening across the globe, yeah. regardless of whether we purchase them or not. So Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And I mean, you know, there's a whole argument of whether you can like ethically consume under capitalism or not. And the reality is is like you can't, so it's it's not that big of a deal. But um,
0: So this brings us to the defund position. The defund right?
1: position, which You know, there's a lot of people that sometimes I think intentionally misunderstand it. And I understand that a lot of people have problems with the names. I wasn't in charge of the name making. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you want to go talk to the people in charge of the name making? Go ahead and take it up with them. But defund means taking resources and responsibilities away from the police. Because if you only take resources away, that's austerity. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's why... Everybody's center right is so freaking out because the only tool they've ever known to deal with government is austerity. Is making it so we're going to take money away from teachers, but oh, yeah, now you have 40 kids in your class. Right. We're going to take
0: money away from teachers to prove how the money would not have fixed the situation in the first place. Yes, Uh
1: exactly. And then, you know, we can, (laughs) and then that, you know, that opens the way. Oh, now we need chartered schools because they're run like a business, don't forget. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they would be more effective. But. That the goal of Defundus is to both take resources and responsibilities away from police. They're my armed police officers, which are paid like you know between 60 and 80 thousand dollars, and they're paid that way because one, they can shoot a gun and they Mm -hmm. can drive fast, and there is all this training and knowledge that comes with it. So, I'm not suggesting we need to like you know cut their wages. Um, but you know, if you're going to do a wellness check. You don't need an armed guard to do that, right? You don't right. need an armed police officer to do that. If you're going to deal with a mental, um, you know, health issue, uh, typically you just you don't need that. You can you can pay somebody much cheaper to handle that in a way that their backup isn't going to be violence. Because right. you might have the nicest cop possible. That's you know the, they've reached the seventh realm of enla- of de escalation mm-hmm. enlightenment and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, in the back pocket, is violence. Right. It's the violence that they could use. And so really what defunding wants to do is all of these social ills that in the past 40 years under neoliberalism, we've said, we're going to throw cops at all these problems. Mm-hmm. Homelessness, mental illness, un- all the undesirable, everything. Drugs, we're going drugs. to throw mm-hmm the police at everything which is expanding their ability to use violence. Right. So defunding is saying, no, 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 we're going to take many of these social problems, one, we can decide whether they're actually like real social problems or not, and we're going to take them out of the police apparatus. And, you know, for things like mental health and, you know, we can talk about the Cahoot's model which is mm-hmm. uh um it's in Eugene, Oregon where typically what they do is they send a medic and somebody that's a trained crisis worker is trained yeah. to deal with people in crises. Um, so what you're doing is you're taking those situations, whether it's a homeless guy or somebody that's off their meds or whatever, instead of having it be involved in the police apparatus, which is, which could very easily end up in the whole criminal justice system. You're putting it in the healthcare apparatus. Um, and that, you know, the healthcare industry has its own pernicious history, but Um, It also has very different goals. Mm -hmm. Violence is not its primary tool of dealing with this problem. Um, And then there's the abolitionist position, which I'll be honest, I don't know an overwhelming about, um, um, about it. Because to me... I don't know how you have a society that doesn't have at least some agent Mm -hmm. that can legitimately wield violence. I'd love to have a society where we had no rape and no pedophiles and stuff like that. My question becomes, how do you deal with that? Right. Um, And some of them, they'll have answers. But the reason I respect abolitionists is because they have the greatest imagination. Mm -hmm. And they tend to have really good critiques as well. So, well so for instance, there's a reformist position of well, we need more civilian review boards, right? That can, you know, review complaints and, you know, do stuff like that. And we've seen these since the 60s. I mean, Peoria used to, created a civilian review board in the 60s because this one kid got shot, and it was just to deal with that issue. And it still has it. And you know, we have one, and the models um you know, typically are really, really limited. Mm-hmm. And the police, the reason it's reformist is the police will use this as a way of, you know, they're basically creating a cheerleading squad that has very little actual ability to, re- to do anything about the complaints. Yes. For instance, both Peoria and Bloomington, when they're reviewing a complaint, the only thing they're actually reviewing is whether the police department... Followed its own procedures, not the individual incident itself. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the information they're given does not include officer names or doesn't include the names of the people that filed the complaint or anything, which is odd because I can FOIA and get all that information. Besides, like, the individual person. That'll be taken out. But I can get the officer's names. So you have this group that can only look at complaints when somebody files it to them. They don't look at all complaints. Mm -hmm. And... In going over the review, they don't get any officer names, so they can't see any patterns right. that are going on. Um, and then there's just really there's just not a ton that they can do. And but what we have seen, and I think Sheila Motney when she was running for city council, she explicitly said this: "Look, we have the PSCRB. They say the police are running, doing a great job. Problem solved." It's mm-hmm. so one of those situations. I don't know. I don't know if that's like you know the the tail wagging the dog or something where you're like we've created this thing ostensibly to hold them accountable and they decided everything's great yeah and so that must be the case um and i've filed complaints with the with our local pscrb and it was like truly kafka-esque sometimes (laughs) because if you file your complaint and you do for and you send it to review they don't contact you they never contact you they don't even they don't even want to hear your story or what you have to say.
0: So they they maybe read the review on the back end, and if they feel it warrants action, they would then act.
1: Yeah. So they like they won't even tell you what meeting they're gonna look at it at.
0: Well, and that's where when we talk about some of these community community groups, I feel like while it is reformist in nature, there's a a lot of undertones of defend the police there, right? Yeah. So. Uh, no, they, there's there's no stick. There's only you know, there's only carrot. And at the end of the day, as you said, you're not gonna. They they have no obligation to to come back and actually show that they've
1: listened. Yeah. So and I mean theoretically, there's all sorts of things that you could do to make it far more effective, right? right. Like you could make it so they review everything that they can punish, officers and actual like do investigations. Those are all within the realm of possibilities. But until we see that, it just seems like it's a cheerleading squad mm-hmm. for the police, mm-hmm. and that in you know that's a critique that abolitionists have. Like you are wasting money on this that could be going somewhere else yeah. because they don't want the police there at all, and you know they believe in you know various restorative justice ways of doing it. And I'm like. Okay, I'm sure some of that would work, but if you have somebody that's from out of town that just comes in and does some crazy shit, which obviously is an overwhelming minority of incidents, mm-hmm. but it's an incident that would happen nonetheless. Right. So that's why I think the defundist position is actually the compromise <laughs> between reform, which I don't believe is going to work, yeah. and abolition, which means that a lot of people are out of a job, I guess. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. To me, the defundist position is is the compromise. And you'll hear people talk about it in lots of ways because a lot of people just don't like the name. So usually if you hear someone say reimagining public safety, or reimagining police, they ha- they have some defundist proclivities. I- I've heard about police officers that are defundists that are like, yeah, I want efficient policing. Of course. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't want to waste bloated policing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's important to talk about exactly what what policies are being enacted that would meet what I've defined as defundist. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So parts of the bill of HB 3653, which is mm-hmm. just you know, massive legislation that was just made into law uh, earlier this year. It's called the Safe Tea Act. Um, in an original version of it, it had penalties in place, that if police departments didn't comply with the law, shocker, um, that they would lose funding, right? So if they didn't follow the rules, there would be a punishment. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people interpreted, oh, look, that's defundist. And I'm like, well, I don't really see that as defundist. I mean, if I get a speeding ticket, the, the I guess I'm being defunded, but it's in order to disincentivize a certain type of behavior. Yeah. But let's say um, we abolish cash bail which we've done, mm-hmm. we, we've started that process, 90% of people in the McLean County Jail and in most jails are pretrial. 90%.
0: And then, so to clarify that, that means they may have been charged with They've the crime, but have not seen a judge and remain in jail as a result the, of... They haven't been convicted. They haven't been convicted, yes. So they yes.
1: So they are pending free trial and under the Constitution, obviously, they're innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. 90% of people. Now, I know some of the people in that jail. Some of them are bad people. They're assholes. They probably should be there. But I also remember, um, you know, with Black Lives Matter, I also do a lot of the bailouts Mm -hmm. where we bail out people. And the last one we did was for Christmas. And the guy that we got out, he told me he had been there since October. And what happened was he was driving a rental car and he got pulled over. And I I don't know, he was driving with a suspended license, whatever. And he was like, fine, you know, tow the car if you need. I'll deal with that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm willing to deal with all those things. Um, But they also found, like, half a gram of Coke on him. And so they arrest him and they incarcerate him. And he can't pay his bond. And so he's there from October till the end of November. And then there's new COVID cases in the jail. And then the jail, because... The sheriff's primary mitigation strategy is solitary confinement. That is his primary method of keeping the spread of COVID out of the jail. And you can agree with that method or not. I'll I'll, I'll give him props. There's been not a lot of COVID outbreak. And I know that he needs this participation trophy, but whatever. (laughs) Um, So...
0: But there is consequence to solitary confinement. No, yeah. There we, is serious we, we could definitely consequence get into all that. that. Yeah.
1: But this guy, so it hits the end of November, COVID cases come up, and they're bring being brought in by the staff, so just to be clear. Um, and then they go on twenty-three hour a day lockdown. So by the mm-hmm. time we got him out, he had spent a month in solitary confinement. Ugh. For driving Suspended License half gram of cocaine. Right. So you know, we're doing a pandemic. We're only supposed to be doing essential things. That's just not essential. Right. It's not essential we incarcerate right. that person and spend, you know, uh, estimates are like it's $200, 250 a day to keep somebody in the McLean County Jail.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Ironically, that's where you would expect the libertarians to step up and back this point. But it is politically inconvenient. <laughs>
1: I, I, I honestly I don't hang out with a lot of libertarians, but in the last four years I realized that fascists are worse than libertarians, so I'm more willing to have That's a conversation right. with them than I was previously. Yeah. Um, but and so you know, not having that person have to stay in jail, you know, if if you dramatically reduce, which will happen with cash with the the abolition of cash bail, and we can go into the specifics you're going to have a huge reduction in the amount of people in the jail. Mm-hmm. That's a defundus thing. That means they're going to end up in the green, and it's like, no, you don't need this money. Right. And we can put this money towards something else. And so it's those types of things that are defundus. Another thing, and we've seen this done during the pandemic before the law was passed, is uh, the practice of citing and releasing. So say you commit a really low-level offense, mm-hmm. right? We're trying to keep the COVID numbers out of the jail, so instead of arresting you, which they can, right, they have enough probable cause that they can't arrest you, what they'll do is they'll give you a citation. Well, they'll essentially give you a summons and say, you have to appear in a court, mm-hmm. you're being charged with a crime, you got to go deal with that.
0: Failure to appear results in a warrant for your arrest. Yes, yes. and, and, and mm-hmm. right
1: now it's an immediate warrant for your arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does change with the new law. Um, and, and, and so the new law actually... Man, mandates that it creates that as part of like official policy that for very minor offenses if this is your first offense if you're not already out on pre-trial right if you're not already facing other other things the officer has the discretion and they're strongly encouraged to give the person a citation mm-hmm. and say you know say they're trespassing or say they're and we can talk about those slides that they have actually real quick H- yeah. If you want to look let's at those talk stories. to those. Yes. So this is a lot of, you know, this is what the Illinois Sheriff's Association has been putting out. So and, so be- before you jump into okay, that, okay. let's
0: uh, we're 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 moving fast here. So I know um, I'm a little no, and that's okay because uh, we'll we'll get to all of it. But really, what what we're dealing with today, or what, what is what is being discussed today, is HB 3635, 3653. Uh, 3653, Excuse me. Um, and this is legislation that was passed last year. Um,
1: it was passed. In, it was signed in March. In it was passed at the beginning of this year.
0: Beginning of this year, and yep. preceding that, you had mentioned one sixty three, as well as the Pretrial Fairness
1: Act. Yeah. So when when the veto session happened in the beginning of January, and obviously all sorts of crazy shit was going on in January, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can only imagine this bill one sixty 160, HB one sixty three showed up, and a lot of us didn't. You know, we had been working on the Pretrial Fairness Act. We didn't know about all this other stuff that was in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it eventually morphed into HB3653, and some things were taken out um, of that bill. Um, And so, yes, then we ended up with HB3653, which... I don't know what these other people were having because, like, within a week span, I read it like four or five times. So they're like, "We had no time to re-read it. I had no idea what was going on." Busy schedules, trying to get money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that bill included the Pretrial Fairness Act, which is something that uh, activists and organizers in Illinois have been working on for five years, trying to abolish cash bail. Um, and so. It, you know, HP thirty six fifty three does a lot more than pretrial trial fairness act, but it's mm-hmm. certainly a major part of it. And it in and of itself is probably the primary defundist thing in there. And there's a couple other things. Um But but yeah, that that, that that's kind of because it will have that um, effect.
0: Yeah. Yes. So so before we jump into that slide, which is sort some, of something like copaganda, as you say, uh, against it, can, can can you detail a little bit what's included in 3653 that that is of note, right?
1: Okay. I mean, so things that are defundist in nature would be the Pretrial Fairness Act, which is the abolition of money bail, which doesn't occur until January 1st, 2023, um, and the implementation of pretrial services. So I don't know if you've ever been, have you ever been in the McLean County Courthouse? I have. It's horrible. Yeah. I've not been I've not been the, on the
0: arresting end. I've been on the, the bailing absolute
1: out. absolute worst. Yeah. Anyway, because of our perpetually perfidious sheriff, you can't bring any electronics in, which just the worst. Anyway, so you get called up and, you know, you might have a a dozen pre-trial things that you have to go up and you go up there and there's a little sheet of paper and you can write down when your next trial date and the judge will be like, "Write it down," cuz no one's going to tell you.
0: Because you can't have your phone. You can't one. You, you can't easily, have your phone to put <laughs> it in your you calendar. Would log this in but also write yeah. it
1: down because you're not going to get a notification. A pretrial services department would actually monitor you as you, as your pending bail, but they would send reminders. Mm-hmm. They would say, "Hey, don't forget your trial date's coming up." Yep. They, you know, they might tr- be able to arrange rides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All things that are a ton of a lot cheaper than re-arresting people and incarcerating them. Right. And so that's why that will also have um, a a defundist... uh, uh, Excuse me. That's why it will also have a defundist effect. Now, there's also the police have greater discretion in who they incarcerate and who they cite and release. And the police have... uh, The police unions have talked a lot about how um, it's mainly B and C misdemeanors. So, trespassing disorderly conduct you know relatively minor things like that the police have the discretion to instead of arresting you and incarcerating you giving you a citation saying you have to appear uh, before that and the reason is is that the Pretrial fairness act de- demands that a judge release a, a person for that crime that they are not unless they have really really good reason right to keep them in jail the expectation is that they will be released so, because the expectation is they're, it's, they're going to be released, if the police officer arrests you, well, they'll be in jail for the night, but then they're going to go over in front of the judge. So, why waste all that time and money right? when we can just issue a citation? And what the police are claiming is that now they can't arrest people for being, you know... Uh, serial trespassers or serial disorderly conductors Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And that's just not the case. So
0: that brings us to the slide from the Illinois Sheriff's Association. Yes. So the Illinois
1: Sheriff's. So I'm going to read it in a very serious voice. (laughs) Uh, It says, What will happen to Illinois families if HB 3653 is signed by Governor Pritzker? And I'll go over uh, um, the criminal trespass. You arrive at home. And notice an unknown person sitting in your backyard. You call the police and wait for them to arrive. The police confront the suspect, and he refuses to leave. The individual cannot be arrested. And no force can be used to make him leave. Only a ticket can be issued. And here's the other one, because they're the same answer.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Disorderly conduct. You own a local store... And an individual is causing trouble. The suspect is being loud and yelling obscenities at customers! Police arrive and realize he's disturbing the peace of the store. The suspect will be issued a ticket, a court date within 21 days, and officers will leave. The suspect cannot be forcibly removed, and the store owner is left with the same problems. Alright, okay, Yes. Please, clear, <laughs> dispel those myths, please. Yeah, so... <laughs>
0: <laughs> if we live in a world like that, that would, that would be a very strange. Yeah. Scenario. So, for the specific mm-hmm. line
1: that they're talking about in HB thirty six fifty three is it says um, an officer for these very specific crimes like you know serial trespassing, serial disorderly conducting, um, in lieu of arrest, mm-hmm. which is Latin. It means in place of, which means you've still committed an offense that you could technically be arrested for, right? Nothing in the bill prevents you from detaining someone, which is legally different than arresting somebody. Um, And so what would happen in these situations? Okay, a police officer would show up to your house and they'd be like, Mr. Trespasser, or however they self-identify, what are you doing here? This person doesn't want you here. You need to leave. And they say, no, I don't want to leave. And they're like, the police officer would be like, okay, well, I'm lawfully detaining you. I'm going to escort you off this property, which Mm -hmm. I have the lawful right to do. And that doesn't change at all under HB 3653. And then I'm going to issue you a summons. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's obstructing a police officer. And that definitely is getting you sent to jail. So So that's
0: a good point, though, right? So there's a difference between detaining temporarily to get a person off the property to then provide a summons for trespassing yeah. versus if that person then goes against the police officer and refuses to leave, at which point they're obstructing justice, that is another charge.
1: Yeah, well, technically it's obstructing a police officer.
0: But Apologies. Yes.
1: Th- there's just a technical, legal, stupid legal, <laughs> legal distinction anyway. One of them actually does deal with that. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, what a lot of us who have been advocating for this bill are recommending is if you have to do this where you have to cite somebody take them to the police station and release them with the citation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can do that right as long you're allowed to detain somebody as long as there's suspicion of a crime and when you're doing something in lieu of arrest right that's the thing it's yeah. Latin it means in place of <laughs> so you know um, but they, you know these sheriffs primarily the sheriffs because they have a little bit more freedom are going around, making up these ridiculous claims um there's another one on here i'm also going to read it's called obstructing police are investigating a homicide a body is on the ground and the area is surrounded with crime scene tape a person decides to enter the area after being told not to by a uniformed officer walks through the crime scene and jeopardizes the investigation this person would no longer be arrested for obstructing a police investigation and force cannot be used to remove the individual from the scene. That is obstruction of justice and it's a felony. That just... I <laughs> and mean, you can be arrested for a felony. Like, that's... Like, what the hell?
0: That is... Um, that that was the the most, like, absurd one of the group of that slide. And if for no other reason, I was thinking... How frequently does someone confidently walk under police tape and yeah. strut into an ongoing investigation? And also,
1: just to be clear, like when it comes to like obstructing a police officer, there is one thing that has changed under HB 3653. Because obstructing police officers is like synonymous with resisting arrest. It just, the only thing that's changed is saying you can't arrest somebody just for the crime of resisting arrest. You have to have an underlying reason yes. to arrest somebody because how is somebody resisting arrest if they're right. not under arrest for something? Right. That's the only thing that has been changed in HB thirty six fifty three, and that's really what they're jumping on here.
0: So, in in that situation, I watch a lot of bad police interaction videos online, and a I'm lot sure of that's times fun. it's it's great, it's great fun, um, great things to do on a Saturday evening, um, but. You see a lot of scenarios where cops will subjectively talk about obstruction, and even if a person is standing there with a cell phone, they'll say, you're obstructing this investigation, therefore you're under arrest. And then so if the person then resists an unlaw- what, what what could be in court considered an unlawful arrest, they are then then arrested yeah. right, for resisting arrest, which to your point, 3653 will remove because you do have the right to stand there at distance and film the police. Yeah. And they don't have subjective they don't have subjective um, rights to pick and choose who is more or less dangerous to an investigation in that instance.
1: Yeah, and also, like to be clear, police are legally allowed to lie to you. This is a Supreme Court ruling. Like lying is an investigative tool. Right. Right, and there's legitimate reasons to do that, you know? Go into somebody who you suspect is a rapist and say, well, we got your DNA results back, and it looks like you came back, and of course they don't have it yet, but then the person spills the beans. Okay, that's a a legitimate, you know, reason to do that. It's It's as
0: basic as the prisoner's dilemma, Yeah, I mean,
1: and, and, like, the question that I have is that if lying is a fundamental part of your investigative practices is that going to bleed over into mm-hmm. other behavior, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if you heard about the incident that happened with, I think I think his name is Art Cox. He's like a local civil rights guy. He's also on the PSCRB. Mm-hmm. And I read what happened. I didn't see any of the videos. But apparently... Um, You know, some car that looked like his was seen going by somewhere and cussed somebody out or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the police officer walks up and basically says, oh, is that your car? Because you've done something wrong. Right. So they're starting from a very specific type of position that's going to put you off balance. Mm -hmm. That's going to give them the upper hand. But, you know, he's either fibbing or, you know, stretching the truth a little bit. Right. But that's because... They're doing that because they expect you to give up information. Right. So, yes, that's why the police are legally allowed to lie to you. And that's why you should not just take everything that they say um, as as gospel. And by the way, when they're in court, uh, they're getting paid to be there. It's part Mm -hmm. of their union contract. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear. Yes. And then the final one, the critical situations. There is an active shooter at a local high school. Police arrive. And the suspect flees the scene. Uniformed officers catch up to the suspect, who is still armed, but no longer actively shooting and forcibly resisting arrest. The officers know who the suspect is, and he could be identified and apprehended at a later date. Officers cannot use force against the subject, even though he just shot people moments ago. Where do you guys come up with this shit?
0: That's rich. That is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the
1: mere fact that like he's in the presence of officers and is still armed, he's a threat. Yes. Um, and there is this thing about a duty to retreat that I've heard um, various uh, perfidious sheriffs bring up. And one, the the HB thirty six fifty three actually says uh, officers have no need to retreat when enforcing the law. The only thing it says. Is that if you're going to use lethal force against somebody, and they're running away, and you don't necessarily have reason to believe that they're running away to go hurt somebody, Mm -hmm. don't murder them. That's it. That's That's all it says. Yeah. Like, if there's still a threat to somebody, you can shoot away all you want. Right. All that. It's just saying in this very specific thing, if you could apprehend them at a later time. Because, right, like, if you go on a high-speed chase, that is dangerous. Right. If, you know, we saw this with, like, Adam Toledo. If you start going on a running chase, that can be dangerous and escalate Mm -hmm. the whole situation. So...
0: I always thought those like uh, the, the, the motorcycle chases were a good example. I remember growing up in Chicago and, and hearing that the police would specifically not chase a motorcycle because A, the speed, but then B, the consequence of them driving on a, a crowded street.
1: Yeah, and also motorcycles can more easily get, Absolutely. get around yeah, so. ditch the police. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so let me ask though, in a situation like that, just to totally dis- debunk the active shooter scenario that we just talked about, Police, as you've said, they have the right to detain people, right? Mm-hmm. So in that situation, if the police saw the active shooter and would they would then I mean, have the right to gun, detain them? Right? Yeah,
1: but I mean, if he still had a gun, he'd probably just get shot.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: I mean, no, I would say 8 out of 10 times. They're true. just going to sh- they're not going to shoot him in the leg. They're going to shoot him in the face.
0: Yes, and we don't we don't right. have a ton of instances where police have have allowed someone with a gun to go, let alone a cell phone or <laughs> anything else yeah. they're reaching for at the time. So,
1: you know, these things are just um, You know, it's weird because part of me knows that they know that this is bullshit. Yeah. Like part of me knows that they actually like know this is bullshit. Well, what happens? I mean, so they could just say, well, this is the way we interpret the bill. Okay, mm-hmm. so say some, you know, person who's been listening to the police decides, you told me I don't, ha- I can't get arrested. So blah, blah, blah. And they get arrested and they go in front of a judge and there's a question about the interpretation. Well, the judge is going to be like, well, what did the lawmakers say? And the lawmakers are saying, no, you can totally arrest them. Okay, yeah. well, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but here's the thing, you know, that cite and release you arrest somebody, That's that can be a two-hour process. Sure. With all the paperwork, mm-hmm. with getting them in car, all of that. And a citation process doesn't take that long. And it's safer. Mm-hmm. So why are police unions against it? That, yeah. That's the question. It's something that should theoretically be safer for officers and take up less of their time. Well, if an officer's busy with two hours of paperwork, that means you need another officer out there. Right. And really, most of these complaints from the police union come down to the fact that the more officers you have, the more union dues they have. Right. In the what,
0: same way that we talked about neoliberalism, police are incentivized for profit. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And and maybe that's a blunt way of putting it, but the reality well, the police is, unions. Yes. Yes. The police unions. So,
1: um, and so yeah, that's why you know this stuff is just straight up propaganda. It's just it's redi- like you. I feel like in order to read these things into the bill, you have to stretch a lot of things that are a yeah. lot harder to stretch than, you know, the interpretation that I, I am making of it. And so, you know, we just, the one thing like Sheriff Asbell of Peoria, it was a really interesting story because he replaced Sheriff McCoy. He was appointed um, and he was ostensibly a Republican because McCoy was a Republican. McCoy was going to replace with a Republican. Mm-hmm. And so then he ran for re-election and he ran against a Democrat, this guy named Fengel, who was the Bartonville chief of police. And it was weird because the Democrat ended up being a way more conservative police officer than the Republican. <laughs> and, you know, Sheriff Aswell, he did a whole great, you know, uh, performance. He, The new Jim Crow changed his life. The documentary 13th, it's his favorite. He probably watches it every Friday the 13th. You know, he's he said at black liberation events the whole tree is rotten the, you know he says yeah. all of these things still supports cash bail and then this bill comes out and he starts trotting out these lies right straight up lies about this bill and like there's just not a nicer way to say that that they are just straight up lying right. about this.
0: well and so going back to the kind of spectrum of from defend to abolish they're again they're using defendist tactics mm-hmm. To to fearmonger, okay, I hate that yeah. term, but right, that's that's what they're doing. Like if you put out a, a piece of material that is you know sanctioned by the Illinois Sheriff Association, whether or not it's filled with lies, people are going to assume that there's authority yeah. imbued in it, right? And that's that's extremely problematic. And so that's to your point about the police unions, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. And so. I, it, it is as simple as saying, and we'll get to kind of some of Sessa and some of the community policing stuff, but it is as simple as saying that if police spend less time arresting people and doing paperwork, we would need less police. That is, this is um, and contrary. Have, and that would have a defundist effect. Right. This is contrary to what unions want because unions want to continue to grow and they want to continue to express a need for more resources. Yes. And that, that helps them stay relevant, yes. right? All right, um, we left off beginning to speak about community policing. Up until this point, we've talked a little bit about pretrial fairness. We talked about HB 3653, um, but I would like to talk about the CESA Act, um, which is, it is emulated by the CAHOOTS. Is it a CAHOOTS Act in Eugene, Oregon, or just It was the actually developed
1: independently. Um, when they were first developing. And so CESA stands for the Community Emergency Services and Support Act. Yep. And it's mainly being lobbied by Access Living, which is a disability rights organization in Chicago. Um, and they've been working on this also 2015, 2016, trying to figure out exactly what it was. But they were coming up with it before they had heard of CAHOOTS. Now, of course, CAHOOTS has been around for like 30 years. Yes. Um, but they were really happy to find out because they, you know, it's another model. And CESA, which has passed the Illinois House uh, unanimously and just passed the Senate unanimously, so they'll have a little reconciliation because of some changes. Hopefully, it'll go to the 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 uh, governor. He'll sign it because he's actually been pretty good on some of those issues. And basically, what CESA would do is it would um, it would one it would divide the um, it would divide the state up into districts, and it would allow a lot of local control in order to provide the best needs that are local. But it would set up a kind of twenty. It would it would send up set up some kind of twenty four hour response service, not made up of police, made up, you know, typically of a medic and somebody that's explicitly trained in dealing with crises, whether mm-hmm. it's de escalation or. You know, people specifically trained with drug addiction or homelessness. And those would be the people responding. Those would be the first responders. So a lot of when we're looking at um, different offenses, right, and I have a whole master list here of, you know, incident reports and the numbers. And I have it for Bloomington and all these different places. And so the question that we were asking... When we were looking at all these, who needs to be the first responder on this scene? Mm-hmm. Just, just does it need to be an armed police officer, or is there somebody else that can be the first responder that might be able to deal with that situation mm-hmm. before? Um, and that is what I think CESA will try and try and do, but it explicitly rejects a co-responder model, right? There, there's this desire that, you know, like the lady I was talking about in Peoria, Bernice Gordon, she's like, well, I need a cop there before I'm going to go do anything. Mm-hmm. And this tries to completely avoid that. Um, and it tries to take these certain problems, these certain social issues, out of policing, the police apparatus, and into the healthcare apparatus. But it also stipulates... That incarceration or institutionalization, because those are the two avenues, are the last resorts. Okay. We want to figure out a solution to your problem in the best way that we possibly can. Maybe we need to you know, take you somewhere that you want to go to get help, whatever. But, but we want to address those issues um, without necessarily utilizing the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also stresses, and this is really important, and were we recording when I was talking about the uh when we were going over the police Rick Scott stuff no okay so we, we can we can talk a little bit about that yeah um,
0: well and let's also give some background here because there were a couple points you made earlier before we were recording that I'd like to recap right yeah so um, the, the the cahoots the cahoots group I don't know how we want to describe that yeah crisis
1: um, action helping out on the streets
0: right. So that started, um, and, and I, I just think this is an interesting anecdote, is it started in the 70s um, as kind of the bummer squad uh, to go and help people who had maybe taken an excess amount of hallucinogens, right? Um, and in those situations, I think, I, I think the last thing that a person who is not in their right mind with respect to drugs like that, uh, a, a, a police officer is going to be seen as confrontational. And police will defend the presence of police by the reaction of the party once the police arrives. Which, once police intervene, people in those instances are more likely to react negatively, or if we want to say aggressively, we could say that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so what what we've seen the the cahoots has expanded since then to handle a number of kind of mental illness and and social issues
1: mainly non-violent non-criminal calls for service.
0: Yes. And that that brings us to the Tim Scott point about a person who is only a risk to themselves as opposed to a person who is a risk to the community around them, right? And you're
1: talking about uh, an interim chief Scott. Yes, yes. Yeah. So just to give a little b- uh, background on that, um at the last committee of the whole meeting in Bloomington, the police did give a, uh, um, just kind of a rundown of uh, what was going on in 2020. And I plan on writing like a full article about it and making, maybe making a couple responses to it. Um, but Alderperson Carrillo brought up something that a lot of us activists uh, have discovered in the police union contract. And there's a lot of things in the police union contracts that I can talk about. Um, but this one is called the Managed Competition Clause and it basically just says if you're going to have someone do police work they need to be with this specific police union mm-hmm. it's just it you know it's very common in union contracts and it just means that we don't like scabs which is okay that's legit however there is an interpretation of of this clause that says well if police are traditionally the ones responding to Traffic collisions mm-hmm. or wellness checks or mental health instances, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then if you hire somebody else to take that, if you're saying, no, I don't want the police to be the first responder, maybe the third, but, but you want to send someone else completely, the, the, our, you know, my way of interpreting that is that that clause could get in the way. And back in March at the, uh, Public Safety and Community Relations Board (PSCRB) um, DSA Blono uh, was was present and had a, a whole laundry list of questions because that we wanted answered just regarding how to interpret some of this data that we've been collecting. And we asked Assistant Chief Wemsley, who is the liaison, and I think he's like second in command. Mm-hmm. And we explained like clearly could this possibly get in the way? And he's like, it could. He admitted that it that it could, and so Alderperson Carrillo brings up this question um, from to interim chief Scott about this, and you know she specifically mentions the clause, and you know he says I don't know how you could come up with that interpretation, and I'm like okay, well I've heard other people come up with that interpretation, but let's hear why you don't think that could come up with interpretation, and he described. You know these type. What we're basically talking about is alternative first responders. Now HB thirty six fifty three does include funding specifically for alternative first responders. It stresses a co-responder model, which means that police and social workers, or however you want to self-identify them as, um, would work in tandem in relating to events. And so interim chief Scott explicitly stated that the co-responder model would not violate this clause. There wouldn't be a mm-hmm. grievance. But what he didn't say uh, was the non-co- In fact, he, he actually said something different. He was, I think he was responding to uh, older person Emig, who um, you know, wanted to know how many mental health calls for service are there. And what he said, and I had heard from some other people that it was like, oh, they're saying it's 1%. But what what Interim Chief Scott said explicitly was less than 1% that I would send a social worker or whatever to that situation by themselves. And then he goes and he lists some of the situations that he would preclude from that. So he's talking about people who are suicidal, people who may have some tendance, violent tendencies either present or past. And so all of these situations, he's saying, I would never send, you know, I, I would I would co-responder, never just send a social worker. But here's the problem. And it, it relies on this idea that somebody who is a harm to themselves Is automatically a threat to public safety and that is something that we're one trying to get away from because the fact of the matter is is that the overwhelming I mean I'm talking about high 90 percentage of people with serious mental illnesses are far more likely to be a danger to themselves than to anybody else and Mm -hmm. it's and it's honestly it's a very kind of like pernicious myth that you know frames people with mental illnesses as being like inherently dangerous and we have to and this is something that sessa will do even though hb3653 doesn't necessarily do that it says you can't kill somebody right you can't kill somebody just because they're a threat to himself but sessa stresses that just because someone is a harm to themselves that that itself should not be defined as a threat to public safety. Because that's what police are responding to. They're responding to threats to public safety. Yes. And that's really, really important. And like one of the reasons they got started with Sess is because they had a guy who, you know, his parents occasionally had to call the cops because he was having difficulties. And he, um, and I can get you the name, I don't remember it right offhand. Um, and he had a butter knife on him. And they shot him. And, you know, these parents called the police because they didn't have it other resources. Mm-hmm, Remember, mm-hmm. you call 911, you get EMS, you get fire, or you get the police. And overwhelming 70%, 80%, the police are showing up. Those are the only three people. Now, if you go to U- Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, where they have cahoots, you can call 911 and be like, hey, I'd like cahoots to show up. Right. I'd like th- I-, I see an issue out here, and I-, and I really just want them to deal with it. Um, and and the reason that this tends that that we believe that this will be more effective is CAHOOTS is 2% of the police budget because it is technically a part of the the police Um, but it handles upwards of 20% of calls for service on 2% of the budget and so that in and of itself that has a defundist thing Right and SESA um, barely mentions policing at all in it whatsoever. There's very very little that actually deals with policing. It's mostly dealing with these um, crisis intervention teams, how they're going to work, and you know the kind of restrictions that they have, where incarceration institution is the absolute last resort. One because both of those are expensive. If you in, if you institutionalize someone in the hospital, mm-hmm. someone's paying for that somewhere down the line, and yep. We already know what happens when you incarcerate people in jail. All these companies get to profit. So um, that's why I'm, I'm really, really excited about the Community Emergency Services Act because it will withdraw the police from all of these things that we have in the last 40 years. We, you know, we've thrown everything out of and say every social ill you need to deal with. Right. Right. And so it's important to understand when we're talking about interim – what interim – Chief gred Scott said is that he explicitly said a co-responder model would not violate the clause but he never said anything about a non-co-responder model right. and that's what a lot of us want if we're passing sesa which i am obviously supporting that's what we want if you're a defundist or a reimaginer or a mm-hmm. fishing policing however you want to self-identify with with this specific ideology This is what we want. We don't want co-responder models. Now, co-responder models could make sense if there is an actual threat level. Right. And one thing that they do find in Eugene, Oregon, and this is the police data, because they do have differing data Mm -hmm. that they uh, compare to what CAHOOTS brings out, and they say for certain instances, like, you know, assaults, battery, like really... Like, relatively minor violent events. Someone may call in and say, I want Cahoots to come here. But in the end, it ends up having to get escalated. Right, because there is a screening
0: process when someone calls the police.
1: And that makes sense. And the way that I've tried to explain this to even Defundus is like, or excuse me, even Defendus is like, look, they can still be in communication with the police. Mm -hmm. They can be down the street, out of sight. And as soon as someone says, hey, I'm worried, I need you to come here, fine. Yeah. But if the police are the first responders, their number one tool is going to be violence to deal with this situation. As as well-intentioned as they may be, as mm-hmm. trained in de-escalation, that's going to be their primary intention. But these crisis response unit, their primary intention is help you resolve this crisis where you're at. We're going to meet you where you're at, here on the street, yeah. or here wherever you are. What is it that we can do to make this better?
0: Yeah.
1: And that doesn't use violence that doesn't use incapacitation and so it's one of the reasons i'm so excited about SESA. um but the next big if it does get signed and becomes law in the governor which hopefully it does uh and this is also with hb 3653 it's the implementation right because the state has given its decrees and now it's up to these local municipalities to implement them, whether it's county boards, city councils, etc. It's now in their hands to implement.
0: Mm-hmm. And for those who may be confused about what happens as information trickles downhill Um, maybe we should look at local coronavirus responses how that was handled town over town right i mean i could go up to tawanda and no one's wearing masks i continue heading north to lexington everyone's wearing masks regardless of the loss so um, in the same way different different police unions are going to articulate different stresses on the officers that may or may not give them permission or license to interpret this differently
1: yeah, and so like there are ways that you can implement this locally that would intentionally hamper it, right? If you don't fully fund, a pretrial services and don't give them the widest latitude to help people get to court, mm-hmm. well, that might not you know <laughs> it, right. it might not work, and then you're gonna have sheriff sandwich saying, oh well, you know it doesn't work. We got to go back to cash bail. It's the, obviously the only solution, right? Um, and you know that's why it's incumbent upon us activists who have fought for all these things to really bring the pressure locally. And that's where you're going to put, be put into the most confrontation with the police unions because the mm-hmm. police unions are ultimately local. Um, and we saw in this past election that they played their hand right. They won. They won two uh, people on, on the, on the seat mm-hmm. and they strategically, cause you know, just back in March they were under new contract negotiations And they strategically held off until after the election, and that they won. So I'll I'll give them that. Congratulate. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, and so we, you know, we saw last year the 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 reaction of the police, a lot of the police unions in response to the protests. And I don't know if you were able to make it to any of the protests last year, Um, but and I'll I'll give Blono this. The Bloomington Normal police handled it the right way, which means they basically just let us do what we wanted to do. Right. I would remind you that's literally the bare minimum. I was going to say <laughs> like yeah, it's not, permitted not, not just <laughs> like driving by and like pepper spraying us is literally the bare minimum. But I mean that's obviously the better strategy is if you're not attacking protesters, they're not going to attack right, you probably. Right. <laughs>
0: well, and that's the weird world that we live in where yeah, I mean I joke about it being like cosplay civil war, but people have people have polarized themselves to an extent where they would like nothing more than to to either fight a cop or fight a member of Antifa. Yeah. And it does become violent and it, it, it I will really point out it. that
1: if you are fighting a cop and wearing masks, there's a very low chance of covid spread. It's very true. I know some Republicans were complaining about that. But, like, if they're both wearing masks, even if they're fighting each other, probably not going to give COVID to each other. <laughs> it's rest
0: assured. So if you haven't gotten vaccinated, then I guess you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and don't go... I'm obviously not advocating going to beat up cops because they'll mess no. you up. <laughs> no, but that, that's another... They a, got a lot another, of friends. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's just another demonstration. And, and we should say this, right? Like, I don't think our intent in having this conversation is to slander to, to slander the police to an extent that abolition is the only option, right? I, I think that with any system as systems grow, they're increasingly susceptible to becoming corrupt. And that is where, in my opinion, the reform argument falls short because rather than continuing to add toolboxes to an already kind of overstuffed toolbox, what if we tried a completely different tool, right? And, that, and this is where I think SESA is extremely interesting, and this is also where CAHOOTS has a proven track record of accomplishing what they have set out to do.
1: Yeah, and by the way, for those worried about the price of SESA, there's like a $35 million grant from the federal government that it can be used for this stuff. Right. Um, and also, a lot of the other things in HB3653, like um, body cam, like there are increased... You know, like more training, which I'm not, I'm not exactly wedded to, mm-hmm. um, and I've explained why. I'm just kind of, like, skeptical of that. But once again, like, most of that stuff, there's lots of federal grants for it. Um, I'm even skeptical of, like, body cams, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, I'm even, like, eh, you know, when people are doing because it, it's a lot of money to get them. And I've heard legitimate arguments that, like, that position where you're not really seeing what the officer's doing, you're only really seeing what the other person's doing, right. actually isn't that helpful right. in trying to figure out a situation. Um, but, I mean, most of our police departments around here have body cams, mm-hmm. and it's it's going into place over time. So, it's happening. Um,
0: but it's good. Yeah. And, I don't know, the body cams, to your point, right, there's good and bad. There's good that... We're now getting more transparency into what happens with these well, sometimes. encounters sometimes if they choose to turn them on, right?
1: Or if they choose to turn them over. Oh. The, the FOIA law around body cams is actually kind of interesting. Really? Yeah. Because to me, um, you have no expectation of privacy when police right. are around, right? Like there's very specific situations where you have no expectation of privacy. And by that, I mean, I can't record you. Mm-hmm. Right like like in Illinois we you're a two con- to consent state. If you are outside in public, I can record you without your permission. If I'm inside somewhere but a police officer is there, I can record without your permission because there's no expectation of privacy around police. However, when it comes to like the body cam laws, and I understand why they do it, I'm just kind of a stickler to the no expectation of privacy around police. So a lot of times you can't end up getting it and right now, um, unless there's an arrest made, unless something, a complaint is made, they're allowed to destroy those within like three months. Really?
0: So it's so not public record then?
1: It no longer becomes public record. So say you, you know, you get st- I've gotten stopped in traffic incidents, and nothing ends up actually happening to me, then that video gets stored for however many months but it's not flagged and so eventually it will be destroyed now if i were arrested from that then it would be kept for as long as it needed to be and then you could get it Mm -hmm. um but it's also it's difficult to get like if i want to say you get into some interaction with the police and you want me you know one of the things that i did as part of dsa as part of the solidarity research working group which was which, which is a group that focuses specifically on activist research, like filing FOIAs, getting this information, compiling this shit. But we also we helped a lot with um, filling out police complaints. And mm-hmm. what I tell people, first of all, it's like, let's FOIA the incident report. Let's, let's see what they're saying. Let's get all the camera and video, and then from there we'll figure out whether you want to still file a complaint or whether mm-hmm. you want to a lawyer or whatever. Um, and a lot of times I'll have to have them submit the FOIA, even though they have no experience doing that, because they'll only release the video camera, the body cam image, not the dash cam. I can get any dash cam I want. Right. But I can't get the body cam, except in very specific cases. So it's another way that these laws are like, are you sure? (laughs) And and of course, if the body cam benefits them, they'll release that in a heartbeat. Sure, sure,
0: yeah. (laughs) Well, at a time when we've talked about pretextual stops, there are probably a number of times where um, an officer is is trying to enact their power on another citizen, and that person is is not guilty. So then, right, in that sense, you would be able to get the dash cam, but not the body cam footage. Well, I can always
1: get a dash cam. Right. if, If I can find the incident, I can get a dash cam no matter what. Okay. And even if someone's arrested, I might not be able to get the body cam. I'll, I'd have to review that part of the law because okay. it's very specific. Huh. Um, but it's interesting that it's not that way. It's not as open as all these other things are Right. when it comes to FOIA. Because FOIA is like a really powerful tool that activists use. For instance, like I was involved in finding out about the ICS contract last year with the jail. And for those that are unfamiliar... Uh, the jail contracts its telecommunication services with a company called Inmate Communication Solutions. And they offer both, you can talk to people over the phone, they also, they also offer video visitation. Um, and obviously they do all this for money. Mm-hmm, There's a fee mm-hmm. to it. Um, and I just discovered recently that back in August they got tablets. Um, so they they're supposed to have the ratio is like one tablet for five inmates. Mm-hmm. And in order, just for the tablets, like the ebooks are free. If you want to file a, a complaint or a medical request, that's free. If you want to like stream music, it's like five cents a minute. If you want to send an email, it's like 50 cents. Mm-hmm. plus five cents a minute of typing if you want to send an image it's like a dollar um and you know w- with all the other stuff with the tele with the you know video conferencing with um the phones the the county makes like i forget the exact number they, they make like a majority of the commission they make like 60 percent commission on this um and the commission rate is a little bit different for the tablets but you know, This is them profiting. And look, I completely understand the argument that says, well, look, these inmates cost so much, mm-hmm. right? And so this is just us trying to make up our costs. But to be clear, this money goes in the general fund mm-hmm. of, of, of the county. And if you were then using that money for rehabilitative purposes, then Okay. And and this this is the other issue is that like we do actually really have to focus on jails. Yeah. Because you'll have people they'll languish in a jail for two years going through trial. They might get fined guilty. They might have they might have done it. Who knows? Sure. And, you know. Um but jails are essentially holding places. They're they're waiting places. if there is any correction that happens at correction facilities, it's typically more likely to be at prisons and if you ask just jail members that are inmates that are at McLean county right now because there's a lot of them that have been sentenced but haven't been able to be released because idoc has been very careful about taking in more people which is the right decision mm-hmm. um they would rather go there because you go outside you can't go outside in McLean county there's right. nothing you can do like you're just stuck in your cell
0: and we took a walk by it the windows have been Frosted to say it politely, yeah, so that so people cannot see in out.
1: response to the black liberation protests mm-hmm. that happened last year. And there were not all of them happened at the jail, but quite a few did. Um, one of the things that was really novel that you know, the very first one we did, we did it on May Day and we did a car caravan because we were still at the beginning of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. car caravans were all that we're in, and so we drove around, um, honking SOS. And you can hear the inmates banging on their windows from across a busy street so that, so that they, they know, like yeah. they're communicating with you. And I always wanted to keep doing actions at the jail, especially for younger activists that aren't experienced, because it was a way of showing how you could t- transgress what the state wants mm-hmm. just, just by doing that. Right? Because the state, one, wants to be able to control all communications. They don't want people talking to people outside the jail. They also want to be able to profit off of it. Um, and I organized uh, a fine arts protest called the Black Liberation Celebration with a number of other people. And we did it at the McLean County Law and Justice Center in that big plaza. But we ended it we, call it, we got a drum line out from Peoria. And what we did is we marched around to the jail. We took over Olive Street, because we have marshals that do that. And we performed for the inmates. And we had our chorus come out and sing for the inmates. And it was within a couple months of that that the windows get covered. Um, there was another BLM protest that was there that happened... It probably happened in August, where they were writing messages and they were putting it up. And I have a decent camera, so I can actually zoom in. Yeah, I can Mm -hmm. see what they say. And so you have some people that are saying, you know, no hot food. They're holding up their inhaler, meaning that their inhaler is empty. Right. All this different shit. Um, and so that's why he covered it up, the sheriff. Um, and he did that at the beginning of November. And allegedly light can get in, but obviously they can't see out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of November, they went into lockdown. 23-hour day solitary confinement. And my understanding is that they stayed in that until at least April. Basically at least April. So that's like 120 days.
0: And I can't continue to reiterate enough that a number of these people have not been found guilty.
1: The overwhelming majority of these people have not been found guilty,
0: yes. So, so they, they deserve the same rights as any other American citizen. Yes. Medical, food, general well-being. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, and, you know, the UN, the Mandela rules, say anything over 15 days of solitary confinement is cruel and unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's his primary COVID mitigation strategy. And then at the end of March, they did have... Um, a clinic where the National Guard came in and they gave the they offered the Johnson & Johnson because it's one shot. And apparently only 25% of the inmates actually accepted it. But we don't know, right, we don't know why there was skepticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not surprised that there's skepticism. We don't know why it is. And the sheriff hasn't showed up to the last two Justice Committee meetings, so no one can ask any questions. So the theory is that it's not quite as severe as it was, but 21 hours is technically better than 23, but it's still pretty bad.
0: Still, that is, um,
1: yeah. So yeah, and I'm like, remember, one of the people that was in there for at least a month on their solitary confinement for a suspended license and half a gram of coke. <laughs> right. right. And they're still, I still see in the news all the time, oh, this guy got caught with this drug and this guy, mm-hmm. he's now incarcerated and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, great. That's essential. That's what right. we need. Um...
0: Well, and yeah, drugs is a whole nother topic. And as we think about the culture of America, America. and how regulation around narcotics or illegal substances has been used to disproportionately affect um, people of color, I, it, it, is, it is astonishing to me that in 2021, we cannot look at this objectively and make laws that make sense.
1: Yeah, and like typically, like, prohibition and abstinence have not been terribly effective Mm -hmm. just in Mm -hmm. general Mm -hmm. like we have a lot of history to show that yeah so i mean whatever
0: yeah um so let's think right we talked about a little bit and then we got off the topic but next steps i go on a
1: lot of tangents (laughs) we all do right
0: (laughs) next steps though right so hb 3653 is signed into law you mentioned some of it would be implementing here in July. July 1st, yeah. So how can us locally continue to put pressure to make sure that this gets implemented in a just fashion?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that's a, a great question. Thankfully, a lot of the stuff that's coming in July is mainly state mandates. Um, it's stuff that will be handled primarily at the state level. Uh, a lot of it has to do with like, training and trying to more carefully delineate what it means for a duty to desist, a duty to um, uh, intervene, right, if an officer is violating another officer's rights. Um, and then there, there's, there's a, probably the thing that I'm thinking of that's most going to be at the local level is how complaints are taken in. Because um, currently, in order to submit a police complaint, you have to get it notarized. Um, and in case you're unfamiliar, getting something notarized is, is puts a legal obligation on it. Like mm-hmm. you were essentially swearing under oath that this statement is true and it could be used against you. And there, there's a history in Illinois, especially in Chicago, um, where people would file complaints and perhaps one material fact was misunderstood and then prosecutors, who are typically very friendly with police, uh, would then threaten the people and say, well, you, you know, you committed perjury or you violated on a yes.
0: on this. On notarized, yes. So
1: now what it's, what is the new policy is that you no longer have to get things notarized. Um, and no longer can they destroy disciplinary records. Because right now they can destroy disciplinary records after three years. hmm so I foia all the disciplinary records, and I only have three years worth, um, and all that stuff. So now they can no longer do that. One thing that we can also encourage, though they're not mandated to do, is to accept anonymous complaints, to, to create a system where anonymous complaints can be held. Now, I know Chief Wa- Assistant Chief Walmsley blatantly said, we're not going to do that, but to be clear, it's not his decision. It's right. it's actually city administration's decision of whether they want to do that. Um, so that's something that we can encourage is is working on. Um, you know, making sure that maybe we can give anonymous complaints. Maybe there's ways that that can be um, useful. So those are a lot of the changes that are coming. Uh, coming up right now. Let me just look through them real quick. Yeah. Um, But it also includes things like complete ban on chokeholds. It's my understanding most of the police departments around here aren't even trained in chokeholds. It does change parameters for no-knock warrants um, and obviously requires an underlying offense for resisting arrest charges. Uh, It will make sure that it's a Class 3 felony for an officer to lie about their conduct, withhold or lie about another officer's conduct, or not follow Illinois body cam laws. Um, And there's a lot more data collection, which is always a good thing, especially because with the pre-trial stuff for the longest time, they don't really have to keep, it's not that they don't have to keep that data, they don't have to keep it in, like, one place. Right. So you have to spend, like, all this time trying to locate. I mean, that's a Mm -hmm. big part of, like, Doing research in bureaucracies is literally trying to figure out where it's being stored mm. or how this information is being interpreted. Or so,
0: a single FOIA request won't yield all the information you're looking for, then? Is that what you're saying?
1: Typically, depending on what you're looking for. Like, I, well, I mean, like for me, I FOIA repeatedly, continuously, population. So, I can tell you the population of the jail, I can tell you broken down by race, mm-hmm. age. Whether they're pre-trial, post-trial, whether they're there for a drug offense, all of this stuff. And I get more information from my FOIAs than the Justice Committee does when they get their monthly reports from the sheriff. Right. So I can tell you more information about what's going on. I can tell you how many people have had COVID. I can tell you how many people have been vaccinated, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And those aren't in the monthly reports that are given. Um, so there's just a lot of like transparency issues there. Um, but I mean, we gotta, you know, in general, we gotta keep up the heat on poli- police, unions, like, or we gotta keep up the heat on police to make sure that they are still following these because since most of these are reformists, we shouldn't expect dramatic, like dramatic changes. Right. And the cite and release policies, the way I've read the law doesn't technically go into effect until 2023. So it doesn't go into effect mm. till the rest of the pretrial. Now, once again, police departments have already been doing this throughout the pandemic. And, like, the Bloomington Police Department has said that they like the practice and they want to continue to use it. I don't... It's not clear to me, like, what specific crimes are going to get what. Um, and I think that there is a lot more discretion there than maybe yeah. there should be. But... Um, so we need to continue to, like, like, right now, before it becomes law, we need to make sure that the local police departments are completely finalizing these these policies and, if not currently doing it, following as closely as the law is going to want. So if, if it's a B or C misdemeanor, if you're a serial disorderly conductor... Yep. Right? Like, okay, start doing that with those situations now. And so us as activists, we need to put the pressure on and um, you know, make sure even those small things that are coming up are ready and to be implemented. I mean the, the biggest thing I worry about is is um the pretrial fairness act just being complete or not the pretrial services department yeah being like just completely anemic. Um and, you know, we'll see what happens there. But, yeah.
0: But otherwise, yeah, it's really up to local implementation of this then, right?
1: Like, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, the activist groups that are, are specifically pushing for, like, they want to us, they need to actually be, you know, going to the table and being like... This is how we want this implemented. This is what the law says. Because they're already hearing it. They're hearing it from all the police unions and Mm -hmm. the sheriffs and all the providious prevaricators. And, you know, they're hearing it from city managers. They're saying, well, this is what the law says. And, you know, we have a chance if we're involved to go further and say, well, this is what the law says, but it doesn't prevent you from doing this and you should be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. One thing with Bloomington that was interesting is uh, Ward 1, Jamie Matthew, who's kind of the more, you know, he's libertarian, he's more libertarian-ish, like capitalist, Mm -hmm. he owns his own businesses and stuff. He's not just a libertarian that doesn't actually own any (laughs) businesses, but he said next month that he is going to put forth a proposal for some type of co-responder model. And so, if that's the case, well, activists need to be sitting down and talking with him about what the options are, and trying to encourage, hey, let's let's try for a non-co-responder model. Let's right. let's let's. There's all these situations in which it really isn't that conceivable that we need um, an armed police officer. You know, you could have a whole separate traffic squad, right. um, And that and, you know, there's all of these different things that are available that we could use. So.
0: Well, and in the age of customization, there could be different levels of service, depending on yeah. need, right? Cahoots is one model. CESA is another, both similar model to Cahoots, but... And that's
1: another thing that is important about modern policing, because if you look at the 19th century and even the early 20th century, policing had very specific goals, right? You'd have a night watch. You'd have a specific group that would typically keep an eye on uh, the diverse... Mm-hmm. Neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right at specific times, but over time with the professionalization of policing, well, police now have an increasingly general character. Right. Theoretically, whatever the issue is, if a police officer arrives, they should be able to figure out some solution. So now we have they have these general branch where they just they're everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about a lot. Um, let's wrap this up. Let's bring this, let's bring this back. So, give a plug to Zach's Corner of Zach's Strange Corner of Thought and the other areas that you're writing. Where can people come to learn more about you and what you're doing?
1: Yeah, the best place is to subscribe uh, on my blog, strangecornersofthought.com. Um, if you're interested in my activism work, look up Agitation Rising on either Facebook or YouTube. And then, if you're specifically interested in my philosophy work, uh, check out my YouTube channel, Zach Strange Corners of Thought. Um, yeah, I'm around. I, I do stuff. Absolutely. Um, so. Well, good. So, well, yeah, thank you so hap- much. I'd be happy to talk with you about you know other subjects as well. So.
0: Well, I uh, certainly reserve the right to circle back and bother you again in the future. Um, <laughs> I, I ask that of every guest, but no, I I. This was one of the topics that I wanted to set out and discuss objectively. So I greatly appreciate the time that you gave me. And I look forward to trying to find someone from the back to blue perspective to um, react. To I would be
1: happy to have a debate with a black, with, with a defendist.
0: If but I can, if I can find one who will do it,
1: let's because, do because it. Because look, I have um, in my family, I have police officers mm-hmm. in my family. Now we don't get along. We have our own personal differences that have nothing to do with that. But I have family members that are very much, you know, they're worried about that individual, Right. what's going to happen to them. So they have all this affinity towards that. And I can typically, you know, I can articulate my position pretty well. Yeah, well, what, and I don't what think you're is. coming from a
0: position of one-sidedness. I think that you certainly express the ability to, to be dynamic, when discussing this reform.
1: Yeah, and I, defund, th- and so. that's something that we don't hear. We don't hear a lot of nuance. And, you know, if City 9290 has another, like, roundtable, call me in, I'll, I'll do four against one.
0: That would be good, <laughs> though, right?
1: Because, But I do think... Because even just listening to that, there were things that I heard them saying that I agreed on when they are like... One of the things that the main lady who organized it, she was like, I hear all this stuff about training. I don't understand, because they already... They do a ton of training, and they can do continuing education. And I knew if I had been there, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. This is ridiculous.
0: <laughs> but in, in, in a way, she what she's articulating there supports your point, right? Like, how, how much more can we dump on these police officers yeah. at a time when mental illness continues to increase? And and I, I think
1: mean, the Academy time, according to Tim Gleason, who is a former police officer, okay. by the way, used to uh, work for Pekin, hmm. And he is on the um, Illinois Law Enforcement Standards and Training Bureau, which is <laughs> the Illinois board that is responsible for certification. And certification isn't new, but there's a ton of new changes in HB thirty six fifty three that I can that I can go over real quick. Um, but he's on that board, so they're in charge of certification and training. Um, and for instance the changes in certification basically in order to be a police officer or penitentiary worker in Illinois you have to be certified the old rules about how you could be decertified you basically had to be convicted of a felony mm-hmm. that was it and now you don't even have to be convicted of a crime like if there's a if if there's a preponderance of evidence that you would have been prosecuted because it's taking into account the state's attorneys work really close with the police, and right. they like the police, and they have to work with these people all the time. and so they're Returning very, customers. Yeah, and so they're very <laughs> reticent about yeah. actually holding them accountable. But it includes, because of those issues, that people could be decertified, and then they wouldn't be able to work anywhere in Illinois. And that's great, and there's actually a lot of police departments like Rick Bleichner of NPD. He thinks that's great because it increases the professionalization, mm-hmm. which is something that he's all about. He's all about, yes, we have to constantly, of course, the increased professionalization increases the idea that they know what's best. For Absolutely. Situations. Yeah, yeah, it stops and short of
0: reallocating those duties to other non-police people. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Well, let's end on that. All right. Let's end on that. I think we covered a lot. I think we do like... Police reform is going to be a difficult topic to come to consensus on for quite some time. Frankly, it may never be possible. But with legislation like we talked about on this episode, there are opportunities to try something different, and that's positive. It's my goal in hosting this interview to amplify a voice like Zach's, not because he's right, but because he's willing to have a nuanced conversation about a difficult topic. As journalists move towards a subscription model, the freedom of Zach's opinions can only persist with the support of the community. Please support Zachary Ahead's blog, Zachary Strange Corner of Thought. Thank you.